This is the last week of a three-week series called Calling, Failing, Grace. It's a vision series to kick off the fall. Our vision at St. Peter's, if you're new, is to join God in the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal of our city through communities transformed by the gospel. I love our vision. I'm behind it with all I am, uh, but it's, it's got to be more than words because I'm convinced that who God wants us to be as a community is not the byproduct of some vision, but the foundation of it because God brings his renewal through communities transformed by the gospel. And so we need to understand who God calls us to be. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at uh, the calling of St. Peter and his failing, and this week we'll look at the grace God gave to him. Uh, But let's do a quick recap. In the first week, we looked at St. Peter's calling. And we looked at how, uh, first and foremost, we are called by Jesus, to Jesus, and for Jesus. That is our calling as a community. But we're often called to more than we're able to accomplish on our own. And so in our second week, we looked at the failing of St. Peter. How left to our own devices, we will fail Jesus' call upon our lives. But I ended that sermon by saying that Jesus is not content to leave us as failures. We will fail him, but he won't fail us. So this week, we're going to wrap up the series by looking at the grace that God gave to St. Peter, the grace that God gives us as a community, and what it means for us to be a community of grace. So I have three points this morning. Uh, The first, we're going to look at uh, the aftermath of failure, the return to failure, and the grace that changes everything. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21, possibly the best chapter in the entire Bible which means I'm going to preach a lot longer. You're welcome. Starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So let's situate ourselves really quickly. Uh, Last week, we looked at Luke's account of Peter's denial and how he betrayed Jesus and abandoned Jesus. Uh, This happened while Jesus was on trial with the Jewish authorities. He was then handed over to the Roman authorities, and and through coercion, uh, a small group of these Jewish leaders convinced the Roman authorities to have Jesus crucified. And he's scourged, and he's shamed, and he's ridiculed, He's nailed to a cross, and he dies. And it all happens just like Jesus said it would happen. And then on the third day, Jesus resurrects, just like he said he would. This passage then in John is one of the few accounts we have of Christ's resurrection and how he revealed himself to his followers. John's gospel in particular records Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene in a garden to Jesus appearing to a small group of disciples in an upper room somewhere, to Jesus appearing specifically to Thomas, who was struggling with doubt about whether Jesus actually resurrected. Uh, Luke's gospel says that Jesus appeared to some disciples going for a walk on the road. Uh, St. Paul even says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 believers at one time. The point is that the resurrection was not just a fabrication in the disciples' minds. This was something that happened within time and space. This happened within history. Jesus reveals himself. 
And John tells us in verse 13 in chapter 21 here uh, that this was actually the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. Which means for Peter, it's not his first time seeing Jesus since the resurrection. He's seen Jesus in the upper room. He's heard of other people encountering Jesus. And, and now he says in verse 3, I'm going fishing. What? Like this, this should really strike us as odd. When I was 13, I came home after school, put down my backpack, uh, and I was on my way to get my customary cheese string snack, and I was intercepted by my parents. And my dad said to me, go to your room man, what did I do this time? So heading to my room, you know, I'm running through the, the list of unchecked vices in my life, wondering what I've been busted for. And I get to my room, and there's a brand new computer. And, and it was the best of the best uh, for 1993. You know, like 17-inch monitor, 486 processor, 512 bytes of RAM, and get this, one gigabyte hard drive stocked with Windows 3.1. I'm talking power, people. My very own computer. And I, I, I turned to my dad and I said, oh, you must have realized I broke your computer. And my dad goes, what? Uh, and I said, well, no, never mind that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, you know, for my own computer. Uh, now, if over the days and the weeks to come, whenever I had an essay for school, if I went back to the old, you know, pencil and paper to write the essay, that would be odd, uh, because I have the power of a 486 at my hands. Uh, it would also suggest that I didn't grasp the nature of the gift that my father had given me. In some sense, for Peter, uh, returning to fishing, it might just be practical. Uh, Peter spent the past three years of his life following Jesus, and he may have just wanted to get on with life, to do the next thing, and, and he went back to what he knew. And he and the disciples might be thinking, it's time just to do something sensible. You know, like make some money, catch some fish. Uh, that's one way we could look at it. But Peter, he's already encountered Jesus. He's seen death overcome. He's seen dead stuff come back to life. This is a universe-altering reality. Nothing can be the same. So the fact that having witnessed this, Peter returns to fishing, it should strike us as odd. It seems that Peter hasn't grasped the life-altering reality of the resurrection. And even if he has, it seems that he thinks that in his failure, the resurrection changes nothing. Whatever he was going through, what, whatever was on his mind, we can't know for certain. But this much we do know. In the aftermath of his failure, he goes back to the familiar. He goes back to his old life. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go do what I know. I'm going to go do what I'm good at. And of course, this is how we all respond in the aftermath of our failure. We've fallen short of Jesus' call in some capacity. We've failed him, and we think to ourselves, this is too much. I can't live up to the calling of Jesus. And so what do we do? We retreat. We go back to the familiar, and we do this in a few ways. Uh, Maybe you feel like you're failing the call of Jesus by constantly falling short of what you think he asks of you, whether that's Sunday services or being in a, a small group or whether that's having a prayer and devotional life or whether that's serving in the community. You think of all these commitments and how you can't keep them all and how you're failing. But you do have time for work. And work makes you feel accomplished. And so you double up your efforts in your existing career. You create more time for work by having less time for Jesus because that way you at least feel like you're accomplishing something with your life. 
Maybe, though, you feel like you're failing Jesus because he's just too hard to follow. Whatever it is, you know, whether it's not living with your boyfriend and girlfriend uh, before getting married, or whether it's waiting until marriage, or whether it is not dating someone who doesn't hold the same beliefs, or whether it's abstaining from drugs and alcohol at the party scene that you used to be involved in. Um, Whatever it is, whatever challenge you face, maybe you've tried to change even. But every time you try, you fail. And so there's just a loosening of our moral convictions when we retreat. We don't wait. We don't abstain. Uh, We pick up the phone. We call the old friends. We get back into the scene, or we dive into that scene for the first time. But however we react in this way, when we retreat from Jesus, there's usually a, a loosening of the rules we thought we had to keep. And maybe for some of us, there's just shame and guilt for feeling like you're not the Christian everyone expects you to be. You feel like you're not only failing Jesus, but you're failing everyone else's expectations of you. And so you retreat emotionally. You know, you invite no one into your hurt and disappointment. Uh, you put on a face when, everyone, when anyone asks you, how are you? I'm good. But retreating from Jesus, however we do it, for whatever failure in our life that led us to retreat from him, it ends up being fruitless. Look at the rest of verse 3. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, this wasn't an unfamiliar experience for Peter in his fishing career, but we can't overlook the timing of it. Uh, Peter goes back to fishing instead of going back to Jesus, and it yields nothing. He tries to go back to life as it was, and he just finds emptiness. And so it is when we feel like failures, uh, when we retreat and turn to other things. The things we turn to are infused with a sense of frustration or infused with a sense of lack. We can't escape often this nagging sense that we're just stuck. In the aftermath of our failure, we go back to what was normal or what worked or to places that give us a sense of control or we try to establish a new normal but we find that in light of knowing Jesus, it's no longer normal. It no longer works. It's in the aftermath of our failure, though, ours and Peter's, that the story gets interesting. Look at verses 4 through 6. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This would have felt all too familiar. It's exactly what happened when Jesus called Peter for the first time. A night of toil and labor and no results, and then at the word of Jesus, superabundance of fish. Surely Peter's heart starts beating a little faster. He thinks, Jesus is calling me again. This is just like the first time I encountered him. Verses 7 through 10 go on. Uh, That disciple whom Jesus loved, long story short, it's John, the Apostle John. You're welcome. Uh, Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land. But about a hundred yards off, when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Uh, Peter, impulsively, you know, rushes to shore. He's reliving his calling. You know, the miraculous catch of fish, the presence of Jesus. But what does he see when he gets to the shore? A charcoal fire. Surely this would have caused some pause for him. Because when John describes Peter denying Jesus in John 18, 18, he says it took place at a charcoal fire. And every word matters in John's gospel. The only other time John points out a charcoal fire is here, at this seashore breakfast. I can't imagine it was the most comfortable breakfast for Peter either. Did he make eye contact with Jesus? Did he feel shame about the, the failure? Did he feel shame about going back to fishing? You know, did he just stare down at his fish and bread and wonder, you know, this is an interesting breakfast? Uh, we don't know. But we do know is that Jesus sits with him. And he invites him into friendship. And despite whatever Peter may think, this shows us that Jesus is not done with him yet. The calling is still on the table, but the meal takes place over a charcoal fire. Just as Peter has just uh, retraced the steps of his original calling, so now he must retrace the denial with Jesus. In the aftermath of his failure, Peter now must return to the moment of his failure. Which takes us to verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Uh, New Testament scholar and historian N.T. Wright uh, says this scene between Jesus and Peter is one of the most spectacular interchanges in the whole Bible, and perhaps in all of literature. And it might sound like an overstatement, but I think he's right. This is a truly remarkable dialogue between Jesus and Peter. But it takes Peter into grief. At the end of the conversation, it says that Peter grieved. Think about the scene, the flickering of a charcoal fire, its smell, the warmth. You know, it, it takes Peter back to the environment of his original denial. But now over this present charcoal fire, three questions. Do you love me? Three times takes Peter back to that first charcoal fire where he denied Jesus three times. Three questions, three denials, the fire. Jesus is unmistakably recreating Peter's denial. He's taking him right back to that place of pain and failure and agony. And it grieves Peter. Because Peter has to confront the brutal tension in his heart. The brutal tension that lies in every single human heart ambivalence, feeling two conflicting things at once. 
may not seem like it, but action heroes, they know all about ambivalence. They really do. Uh, take Jason Statham. Uh, great action star. You can disagree with me, that's fine, but you're wrong. Uh, in 2013, uh, he, he was filming a movie in Bulgaria, because that's where you film action movies. And it was a scene where he had to drive like a big flatbed truck uh, to the edge of a dock at the edge of the, the Black Sea. And so they were doing a test run of it, and he's driving the truck, he hits the brakes, and the brakes don't work. And so the truck goes over the dock, nine feet down into the water, and the windows are down. So the water starts flooding in the cab, pushes him back, and the truck sinks 60 feet down to the bottom of the Black Sea. Jason Statham, when interviewed about this, he said, when I hit the bottom, you know, wearing like guns and like a jacket and big boots, like everything you don't want to be wearing at the bottom of the Black Sea, he just thought to himself, well, this is how it ends. Uh, now, if you were going to be trapped in the bottom of the Black Sea, and you had your pick of action heroes who could come save the day, who would you want there, you know, to help you? Sylvester Stallone? You know, he might be a good pick. Uh, Schwarzenegger? That would be a good pick, you know. Uh, Jet Li, Harrison Ford, Wesley Snipes, Mel Gibson. Uh, well, all of them were on the dock because they were filming Expendables 3. <laughs> Terry Crews, he was also on the dock. He would be my first pick. If you don't know who Terry Crews is, look up the Old Spice commercials. This guy is crazy. Uh, Terry Crews, uh, that dude could dive down to the bottom of the sea and with his pinky rip off the door, grab me out of the truck, and from 60 feet below just throw me to the shore. Terry Crews, send down Terry Crews. Uh, in an interview about this event, Terry Crews, he said this is how he responded. He dropped his smoothie and he screamed, Jason! Jason! And then he fell down in a ball of fear. And he said, it was, no one did anything. You have the world's action heroes on this dock. No one jumped in. No one helped. They all just stood there. Apparently, Sylvester Stallone busted out his iPhone. He's recording it. Uh, you know, Jason Statham, true action hero. He just swims out the window into shore like it's nothing. You know, you're in Bulgaria. And they're like, shoot again. Uh, all of the action heroes, though, they, they had to confront their ambivalence. Wanting to be the action hero, wanting to be that person they portray, the person who saves the day, but confronting a paralyzing fear that stopped them from doing anything. It's ambivalence. It's feeling two conflicting things at once. Peter, he's grieved because he recognizes this in himself. He loves Jesus. He really does. But he knows that he's betrayed Jesus, and he knows that he's capable of failing Jesus again, despite his love for him. It's both. It's love and it's failure. And so Peter says in response to this third question, verse 17, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Essentially, he's saying, you know this, Jesus. You know the denial. You know my betrayal of you. You know my inability to live up to your calling. And you know, Jesus, that even having done this, and despite whatever it may say, you know that I love you. In a real sense, Peter is confessing here. He's saying, I love you, but I now know that my love alone is not enough. And you know all things, Jesus. You know this about me. And on some level, this really bothers us. Because when what Peter confesses here, that 
our love is not enough. It just flies in the face of the popular sentiment of love because we like to think that love is enough, that love uh, can heal the world. Think about the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Now, we can sing that song with conviction. Uh, We buy into it. Uh, We think it's love that can unite the world. We think it's love that will endure through the storm. We think it's love that will mend every wound. But this text says no. At least no to that sort of love, to a love that finds its origins within ourselves. Peter loved Jesus, but it wasn't enough to overcome his brokenness. He still betrayed him. Our own ability to love, it might be sincere, it might be true, it might be deep, it might endure, it might be meaningful, but it's not enough to conquer our own brokenness. And the sort of love that can change the human spirit, the sort of love that can mend the world, then can't be human love alone. Deep down, we know this. We know love is our highest aim. We know that love can unite the world, but it's not like we're going to call up Putin and be like, can you just love the Ukraine a little more? We know that we need nothing short of a miracle to mend the world, to even mend our souls. You see, love solely from the human heart isn't enough because our brokenness, our selfishness, our sinfulness, it always gets in the way. But we have to ask, why does Jesus do this to Peter? Why take him back to this moment of failure? Why take him to the recognition that his love is true but not enough? Peter, he's sitting at this charcoal fire. He's remembering the denial. He's remembering the crucifixion. He's looking at Jesus in a resurrected body sitting across from him, a body altogether different, and yet the Gospels tell us a body that still bears the marks and scars of being crucified. You have to think, could Peter sitting across from Jesus look away from those scars? We have to remember the denial scene. When when Peter denied Jesus, Jesus locked eyes with him. He looked at him with compassion. And now Jesus recreates Peter's darkest moment, but not to shame him. To enter into it with him, that, that Peter might find the compassion even there that Christ offers. Because the scars on his body from his death that he carries in his body into eternity are not for our condemnation. The scars of Christ are for our healing. They're for our reconciliation. They are for our salvation. Jesus takes Peter back to the moment of his failure because Peter has to know without a shadow of a doubt that there is nothing that he could do to deserve or warrant Jesus' sacrificial death for him. Because it's for Peter's failure and the sinfulness that it represents that Christ died. And you see, Jesus' death and resurrection, it doesn't just broadly apply to humanity. It specifically applies to humanity. It applies to Peter. It applies to me. It applies to you, to Julia, to Mike, to Bub, to Michelle. It, It is specific. It is targeted. Peter needs to see that Jesus meets him there even at his worst. That he offers him forgiveness even there in the betrayal. That Jesus even went to the cross to die when Peter had abandoned him. Jesus died for him not when he had his act together, not when he was following Jesus well, not when he could have any notion of deserving it. 
But he, did, he died for Peter precisely when he had nothing to offer. And Jesus allowed Peter to go to that place because otherwise Peter wouldn't be able to recognize that it is a gift, something that could never be deserved. But Jesus also takes Peter back to this moment of failure because Jesus isn't done with Peter. He's not content to leave him in the aftermath of his failure. Jesus did this dying for others' sins because the love of God is greater than the love of humanity. The love of God powerfully expresses itself through the cross. Forgiving the sins of people who didn't even want forgiveness, you know, absorbing his own wrath, extending his love with such a power that we can be restored and reconciled in a way that our own love can't accomplish. Which is why Jesus says to each of Peter's responses, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Three commissions, three invitations to pick the calling back up and follow Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, your failing doesn't change anything. It doesn't negate your calling. Which means Peter's failure to live up to Jesus' calling isn't accidental. It's part and parcel of being called by Jesus because Jesus doesn't call perfect people. He calls broken people. He calls the sinners. And Peter doesn't have to overcome his failure or his sins. Jesus did that for him by going to the cross. Peter just has to be willing to bring these things to Jesus, to sit with him at this fireside, to receive the forgiveness and grace and reconciliation that's being offered there. And when we do that, when we bring the mess of our lives to Christ, we will grieve. We will repent, but we'll also experience the profound compassion that Jesus has towards us. That all our shortcomings and sins are overcome by his grace. And his grace changes everything. Look at verses 18 through 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You set the world on fire. No. Uh, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. (laughs) It's bad to laugh at your own jokes. Let's try this again. Uh, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus gets a little bit cryptic on us. I mean, it goes from this reconciliation conversation to here's how you're going to die, Peter. What is going on here? When Peter was young, uh, as he is in this passage, uh, he lived by his own will and his own power. Uh, Left to his own devices, he abandoned Jesus. He said, Jesus, I'll go to prison for you. He did it. I'll die with you. He did it. And Jesus says, Peter, when you're old, Another will carry you and dress you uh, and take you to that place you weren't able to go on your own. You will be imprisoned for me like uh, you said you would be. You will die for me like you said you will be. And, and what's amazing is that church tradition holds that Peter 
was in prison, that Peter did die for Jesus, that he was crucified, and that in the moment of being crucified, he said that he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same position of his Lord, so he was crucified upside down. How on earth did Peter go from being a failure, a denier, to a martyr with unswerving faith at the end of his life? To make some sense of this radical transformation in Peter's life, we have to go back a chapter. It's one of the first times Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, and he, and he appears in this room, and he says, As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he said this, John writes, uh, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus offers us, the very presence of God living in us, going before us, dressing us, carrying us, enabling us to do what we could never do ourselves. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive Christ in us, which means we receive Christ with us. And what I really love about this passage is how it ends. Verse 19. After this, Jesus said to him, follow me. The calling hasn't changed. It's the same calling, but with a different pair of shoes. Peter is called by Jesus and to Jesus and for Jesus. And Peter now knows he will fail that calling. And the only way he will be able to live out that calling is with Jesus. Our true calling is, is by Jesus, to Jesus, for Jesus, and with Jesus. Jesus will empower us even in our weakness. Jesus will accomplish in us what we can't accomplish ourselves. That is grace. Yes, grace is the unmerited forgiveness of our sins, but grace is also the presence of God working within us and overcoming what we cannot overcome in ourselves. Does it require our participation? Absolutely. But it is always Christ's initiative. It is always Christ healing the brokenness that we can't heal ourselves. Do you know this grace? Have you encountered the grace that changes everything? It's free. It can be yours. You just have to ask. This leads us, of course, to say, what does the, the grace given to St. Peter here tell us about being a community of grace? And I've really struggled with what to say here. Because as a preacher, I can only take us to the edge of grace. Uh, words will fail. It is bigger and better than I can describe. I can only lead us to that point where we have to ask the Holy Spirit to show us grace. Because the truth is, we can never exhaust grace. We can never explore it fully. We can only uh, dive deeper and deeper into it. And marvel more and more and more. But what I am certain for our community is this. Grace always comes to us on its way to someone else. Grace always comes to us. If we want to understand grace, we will not understand it by simply trying to understand the theological concept. We will only understand it by taking off our masks and admitting our brokenness and our sinfulness and receiving grace from God's hands. So my hope as a community is that we could be a place where 
we are okay with being failures, that we are okay with being imperfect, that we are okay admitting our faults. You can come here with your mask on, and you can keep it on as long as you want. You are welcome here. But if we are truly a community of grace, over time, grace will move you to take that mask off and to present yourself as you truly are before our Lord. But grace comes to us on its way to someone else. Think about Peter. He receives grace from Christ. He's reconciled to Christ. But Christ is concerned about sending him back out, back on the call, back on mission. Our calling then as a community is that we would be a community who experiences God's grace in such a way that it moves us to extend that grace to others. Grace is always our motivator. We forgive because Christ forgives. We serve because Christ serves. Grace has to be at the center of the things we do. And this city, people, desperately needs grace. This city desperately needs to hear of Christ's forgiveness and the radical grace that God offers. That's why we're doing Alpha. Because you will find that most people can't wrap their heads around the forgiveness offered in Christ. They have to be brought to him and experience it from his hands. My sincere prayer as, as one of the pastors of this community is that grace would stay at the center of everything we do. Because grace changes everything.